1: You can subscribe to the podcast on Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Thank you for listening, and enjoy.
0: Sarah Slager is an author and academic based in Los Angeles, where she teaches English and creative writing as a postdoctoral fellow at the University of Southern California. She holds a PhD in English from the University of Pennsylvania and a master's in history from the University of Cambridge. Her writing has been published in McSweeney's, Quartz, The Hairpin, and other outlets, Take Me Apart is her first novel. Amy Jo Burns is the author of the memoir, Cinderland. Her writing has appeared in the Paris Review Daily, Tin House, Plowshares, Gay Magazine, Electric Literature, Literary Hub and the Paris Review Daily and the anthology Not That Bad. Shiner is her debut novel. All right, Sarah and Amy Jo, welcome.
2: Thanks for having me. Thank
0: you so much, Maddie. All right, I'm going to disappear and I will uh, let Sarah take it away.
3: Yeah, Okay. cool. So I'll start um, by reading a few minutes from my novel, Take Me Apart, which looks like this. Um, My bookmark is this actually very cool, um, like this little like specialty cocktail that my publisher made for the for the book for like a pre-launch event, so that's cool. Anyway, um, Take Me Apart is a literary suspense novel, a thriller about an archivist who becomes obsessed with solving the mystery of a famous photographer's death 25 years earlier. And so it goes back and forth between the archivist's perspective in the present day and, sort of parts of it that are told, parts of the story that are told through the photographer's documents, um, things that were left behind in her house when she died, so like her diary entries. um, She finds a lot of old photographs, so you don't see those in the book, but the book's told through the diary entries, letters, um, medical records, receipts, kind of everything. of anything and everything in between. And we can talk more about that in the discussion, maybe. Um, I'm going to read a section that's really early in the book, um, and but it's not like the first pages. So the only really important thing to know, I guess, is that um, the Kate is the name of the archivist. She's come from New York for this job, um, like archiving um, the photographer Miranda Brands objects sort of going through her house. She didn't know a lot about the job before coming. She used to be kind of more like a fact checker or copy editor at a newspaper, but left under mysterious circumstances. So she sort of landed in Northern California, is staying with her aunt and uncle for free, which, you know, involves some like interesting family dynamics there. and is working for Miranda's son, Theo, who wants to sell his mother's um, documents to um, a library or a university. So the part I'm going to read is like, Kate comes home from her first day, working at Miranda's house, having met Theo, things didn't go super well. um, And she's kind of talking to her aunt and uncle about this. And, finds out some things about Theo and about rumors in this small town um, on the coast of Northern California that she didn't know before. I think that I know that sounded like a long explanation, but I think it's pretty um, self-explanatory. Dinner that night was served on the screened in porch at the back of Louise's house on a shiny wooden table surrounded by hosta and tall rubber plants. The fog had faded by the afternoon and now the air was warm, windless, nearly sticky. Frank, Louise's preternaturally inoffensive husband had bought a bottle of champagne and four dozen point Reyes oysters to celebrate Kate's first day at work. Kate had tried oysters before once or twice but only on beds of ice and lettuce. These were different, raw and wild, so fresh they were practically squirming in their shells. They slid down her throat in a slip of salt and brine. So, Louise said, clapping her hands together, Tell us about the house. The house? It's a house. Kate dropped an empty shell into the discard bowl. A living room, a dining room, a kitchen. Katie, come on. I assume there are bedrooms too. I didn't see those. You know what I mean. There's not anything to say, Kate said, reaching over to refill her aunt's glass. It's pretty boring. It was true, sort of. After that first uncomfortable meeting, Theo had disappeared upstairs and she had spent the rest of the day alone in the dining room, sneezing dust and pushing boxes around. In addition to the massive quantities of papers and documents, the dining room was full of random objects. Already, Kate had found 18 Lego pieces, four melted lipsticks, three staplers, two rolls of masking tape, a nail gun and a weird China marionette with a broken arm. More than once she had put in, put something down only to discover that her fingers were coated in a mysterious sticky stu- substance. Her back ached from bending over. Her eyes were red from squinting. She had spent half an hour going through a thick stack of bent note cards only to determine that they were indeed all blank and could be safely set in the discard pile. Yes, it was boring. Boring, repetitive, and way less fun than watching reruns of Vanderpump Rules on her parents' sofa, which is what she's been doing for a couple months before this. But, but boredom was like pain. When it was gone, it no longer longer felt real. 600 note cards took up the same mental space as 60 as six as one. That half hour had already become a millisecond in Kate's memory. The money helped smooth the rough edges. Kate's contract said that on top of her hourly rate, she would receive 0.5% of the proceeds from the sale of any art. Online auction records said Miranda's prints went for anywhere between 60,000 and 900,000. Before entering the brand house, Kate had assumed she might find a couple prints max and get a nice little bonus of a few thousand dollars. But it was quickly becoming apparent that the dining room crammed as it was with trash was also full of valuable material. Shortly after setting aside those infuriating note cards, she had found a small photograph in decent condition, the ink dense and shiny, the paper unwarped. It was one of Miranda's nature photographs, a close-up of a leaf's corded vein. That was how it was sometimes in the archive big discovery sandwiched between trash, the day-to-day touching the phenomenal. Now she felt drunk on the knowledge that she had earned real money, real money for real work. She had felt so worthless for so long that the mere fact of employment was a relief as taking a heavy back, taking off a heavy backpack at the end of a long hike, even if her boss was a dickwad. It can't be all boring. Louise said, everyone wants to get inside that house. Now you're in there. Give us some details. Honey, leave her alone, Frank said. She can't tell us anything. She signed that agreement. The agreement doesn't apply to family, Louise said. Frank was swallowing oysters like a happy hour special was about to end. Like Louise, he had taken to retirement with gusto, spending his days tinkering with CB radios and kayaking around the lagoon. Instead of a tan, his skin had adopted a permanent pinkish sheen. Even now in the lilac dust, he wore his wraparound sunglasses hooked on backward like they were shielding another set of eyes in the back of his head. You'll get your behind the scenes sooner or later, he said to his wife. Anyway, what do you think the guy's gonna do? Come right out and say he killed his mom? Kate spat out a mouthful of champagne. Frank, Louise exclaimed, jumping up with her napkin as Kate coughed and coughed. What, what did I do? Louise glared at her husband as she pressed the napkin onto the tablecloth. Have some sensitivity. Frank looked bewildered. You didn't tell her? I thought that was your whole thing. It's not my thing. Okay, your friend's thing. Katie, do you need any water? I'm fine, Kate said, still coughing. I just, I was surprised. Ignore Frank, Louise said. He's, ju- he's trying to stir the pot. It's more a joke than anything, Frank said, uncertainly. He fidgeted his sunglasses up and down on the back of his head. It's not a joke, Louise said. Poor thing, he was a little boy. If he shot her, it was obviously an accident. I'm sorry, back up, Kate said. What do you mean if he shot her? I thought Miranda committed suicide. She did, Louise said, just as Frank waggled his eyebrows and said, so they say. Kate gritted her teeth. Everything I read says she killed herself. Her aunt and uncle exchanged looks. Louise sighed. The police ruled it a suicide, but only, she said, but only after they made a huge stink about it. They interrogated a bunch of people in town. Obviously, we didn't live here at the time, but my friend Roberta said the place was swarming with cops. And my friend, Victor, Frank said, was one of the detectives on the case. According to him, they treated it as a full homicide investigation. They didn't think she could have done it herself. Something about the forensic evidence, like on CSI. There's all kinds of theories, Louise said, talking more quickly now. She had resisted this course of conversation, but now that they were on it, she was going to lead the charge. I mean, number one, Jake, obviously. It's always the husband. If you watch Lifetime, you know. Not that I watched Lifetime. People say Jake just because they have to, Frank said. But everyone who knew him swears he was the nicest guy you ever met. That's what they always say about serial killers, Louise said. Oh, yeah, Frank said, remembering. That's another idea, the Zodiac Killer. You know, he was never caught. So basically, Kate said deadpan, Miranda Brand was killed by Theo, Jake, or the Zodiac Killer. Okay, I'm going to stop there. It's a little more comedic than some of the other um, sections in the book, but I think a taste of, taste of the energy. Um, Amy, I'm so excited to hear you read. Yeah, thanks.
2: I just want to say I was lucky enough to read an early copy of Take Me Apart, and I was so excited for it to come out because I loved it, and I've told all my friends about it. It's yeah. the sort of book mentioning to everybody because I just loved it.
3: Oh, yay. That makes me so happy. Mm-hmm. I just finished Shiner today, by the way. I have my copy right here. I'm so excited. I feel the same way. I'm really excited to talk to you. Okay. I want to hear it.
2: <laughs> sure. So uh, yeah, so this is Shiner. Um, I will tell you a little bit about what it's about before I read. But So Shiner is the story of a 15-year-old girl named Ren, and she lives a really secluded life in the mountains of West Virginia with her parents. And her father became a local legend when he was young and he got struck by lightning. And he becomes this preacher who takes up serpents. And one summer, Wren witnesses his, him perform this really strange miracle that goes terribly wrong. And as a result of that, all of the, her family secrets start to unravel. And so the story is told from Wren's perspective as well as um, a lovelorn moonshiner and a reclusive housewife. And those three voices work together to tell the true story that has always been hiding behind this mountain legend. So um, I'd love to read some of it for you. I'm going to just read the prologue, which is short, and it's titled True Story. Making good moonshine isn't that different from telling a good story. And no one tells a story like a woman. She knows that legends and liquor are best spun from the back of a pickup truck after nightfall just as she knows to tell a story slowly, the way whiskey drips through a sieve. Moonshine earned its name from spending its life concealed in the dark, and no one understands that fate more than I do. Beyond these hills, my people are known for the kick in their liquor and the poverty in their hearts, overdoses, opioids, unemployment. Folks prefer us this way, dumb mouthed with yellow teeth and cigarettes, Dumb-minded with carboys of whiskey and broken-backed Bibles. But that's not the real story. Here's what hides behind the beauty line along West Virginia's highways. A fear that God has forgotten us. We live in the wasteland that coal has built, where trains eat miles of track. Our men slip serpents through their fingers on Sunday mornings and pray for God to show himself while our wives wash their husband's underpants. Here's what hides behind my beauty line. My father wasn't just one of these men, he was the best. Since word of his sin spilled down the mountain, folks have split from the highway, hoping to catch a glimpse of a fallen hero. They believe that this miner's outpost, shriveled since the coal barons claimed it 40 years ago in the 1970s, still holds the key to my father's miracles. Welcome to trap, the new sign outside city limits says. What it doesn't, come here to fall in love. Come here to fear for your life. Strangers ask what I can tell them about the snake handler and his wife. They want myths and legends. They aren't tempted by the truth. It's a true story, I begin, roosting in the back of an old truck. I swear it. Then I tell them that these woods can turn eerie or romantic, depending on the company you keep. It's an autumn night, and the fire is lit. Moonshiners sneak in their final runs of whiskey while young women like me tell old tales. The sun sets early. Along the outskirts of trap, you'll find me standing in a constellation of four-wheel drive trucks in the woods behind the old Saw-Wet motel. The mountains hover at my back. The story of the snake handler's daughter began when I'd just turned 15. I knew little then of the outside world my father kept from me. Ours is an oral civilization, I used to hear him say. And it's dying. He blamed coal, he blamed heroin, he never blamed himself. He thought he had the only tales worth telling, and he never understood what my mother had run from all her life because she'd been born a woman. The truth turns sour if it idles too long in our mouths. Stories, like bottles of shine, are meant to be given away."
3: Yeah, I'm so excited. I really love um, reading, like, or hearing the prologue again after reading the rest of the book um, because I felt like when I first read it at the very beginning of the book, it like conjured this um, this setting just so perfectly and so beautifully. And like, there's also such a tone of like the kind of folkloric nature that just like came. It like just in terms of setting the tone and the voice, it was so wonderful. But then also now, like listening back to it after having read the book, don't worry, I won't give any spoilers to anyone else. But I think that there's like references to things that I didn't fully pick up on. I feel like when I first read it, um, it's cool. Like the like the discussion of the father's sin, for example, mm. I hadn't really noticed the first. I hadn't really noticed like the first time through when I read it I hadn't like jumped out to me. And then hearing you read it again, it really does. So it's really exciting. It's cool.
2: Um, I will jump in with questions because I have a list of them for you because <laughs> oh. um, I think, you know, um, when I read thrillers, th- I always have this experience where it just feels like you're turning the pages and then when you're done, you kind of set it aside and you move on. But your book was something that stuck with me and just went so deep for so many reasons. Um, so to me, it's just a thriller that has hearts and smarts and um, mm. but I think one of the reasons that is, is because of the characters. I mean, so we're seeing them through your writing, but we're also seeing characters through the things that they've left behind through the eyes of other characters. And I would love to know how these characters like first came to you in whatever way.
3: Yeah. um, That's a great question. And also it was interesting because I was like working on a new project today and was like thinking like how do I come up with character like I was just sort of trying to remember um when you figure it out let me know yeah exactly (laughs) like I don't but I will say that definitely you know that question of um because like parts of it are told through Miranda's (laughs) entries and through letters written to her Um, And also a lot of it is about the kind of inherited or like received narrative that um, we have, we meaning like the collective, like public imagination in this fictional world have about this artist's life. I was very conscious of like the ways in which a character's identity might be interpreted differently and presented differently through those different perspectives Mm -hmm. and how you know that there are also like for example there are there are a lot of things that Miranda knows about herself that people don't from the outside don't know about her obviously but there are also like things that Kate knowing um Kate kind of like digging into her items Knowing the sort of like myth that surrounds her, there's kind of like a perspective on Miranda that Kate also has. And so Mm -hmm. I feel like it was a little bit like trying to like trying to create the feeling of like triangulating a character, right? (laughs) Like I love that feeling when you're reading a book and you are like suddenly taken into another character's perspective and you're like, oh, like suddenly this thing makes so much more sense to me now or suddenly I, or like this person is more complex than I even imagined. Um, I really felt that way with the mother character in your book. Um, so I would also like love to hear you talk about Ruby and how you created her because we see her first like through her, um, through her daughter's perspective. And mm-hmm. then we kind of see her through Flynn's perspective who's like in love with her. Or is yeah. that, I don't know that the second, but, and then we also, you know, see her perspective through like her friendship with Ivy. And I just got such a different sense of her every time. Um, did you, was there like one perspective that you started off with?
2: Yes, I actually, I did. I started with Ren, the daughter, um, kind of looking at her mother and only being able to see her mother as a mother and not kind of realizing that before Ruby became a mom, she had this really vibrant life and she had to make really difficult choices. And, you know, I think when I started writing Shiner, I really wanted to write a book about what it feels like to be misunderstood, um, especially by the people who are closest to you. And I really wanted to write about what it feels like to be a woman who has a story that has gone unheard and what a burden that is. And then, on the other hand, to also show what a gift it is to bear witness to somebody else's story. Um, and, you know, so Ruby sort of came to me, I think, first through all the questions that Ren had. And I think that that's really natural and relatable to kind of as, as you age to look at your mother and be like, I just have all these questions about what her life was like. So for a long time, when I was writing, I think Ruby just existed in absence because the world in which Shiner happens on this mountain, women have to live kind of in between very narrow lines. And because of that, there's so much that their husbands don't know about them. Their children don't know about them. And these women are carrying these like juicy secrets around that nobody knows. And part of the story and part of the journey, these characters going through are like, you know, keeping secrets and then trying to decide at what point is it okay. And is it right to start sharing them, um, you know, after they've aged and are kind of looking back on their lives. So um, I, I think that, Ruby represents for me the question of what becomes of a woman when she does decide to become a a mother, especially when she's sort of like stuck in this very traditional religious um, situation. So um, it took some time because she wasn't on the page very much because I wanted it to kind of be a book about her absence, Mm -hmm. you know? Um, but then that wasn't enough because, like, I think what I realized over time was that it was, like, I'm hungry for Ruby's story. Like, I want to know who she was. And that became, I think, as I was, like, growing in that way, the book sort of grew that way as well, you know? So it's yeah, kinda, that's, yeah.
3: I had this, like, feeling when, like, reading it, like, it was – it was almost like Ruby wasn't even like consciously trying to keep these secrets, but like, because like nobody had ever asked, right? And and because, you know, of like the dynamics of her marriage and like her position and, you know, being really secluded from the rest of people. But it was sort of um, this sense of like, because I guess, you know, if we're just talking about like Ren and Ruby, like mother and daughter together, like it seems that Ren hasn't even, She doesn't even he doesn't even know that there are like other questions for for her to ask. And as a result, Ruby hasn't really felt um like the need to tell her or hasn't felt like welcome to tell her. Like, did you think of Ruby as
2: a secretive character, if that makes sense? Yeah, no, I think what it is for her is that she's been taught that silence is survival. Mm -hmm. And um, what I wanted to do was show the cost that that has, not just for somebody like Ruby, who's a mom, but it's a cost on her community, on her daughter. When we don't let women tell their stories, there, there are, there's a real fallout and some real consequences. So I wanted to show the consequences as much as like the life that can come when you are able to share your stories um, in a way where you're not afraid of, you know, retribution or anything like that. So that was a little tricky to figure out how to pull off, um, you know, both sides of that story. But, but I do think that for a long time women have been told they can't tell their difficult stories. And I think I wanted to really reckon with what happens, like what's the cost of that, you know? Uh, but then to also create a storyline where Wren doesn't have to play by those rules, you know, and her mom doesn't want her to play by those rules. And that's kind of where a sense of hope comes from. Um, But, you know, I think part of it is because it's very particular to the place where the book occurs, this mountain and like who's in power. And, you know, I was thinking when I read Take Me Apart, like one of the great things about it is the landscape and the setting. And, you know, I think that for both of us, like landscape sort of plays a a big role in either setting the tone or it's kind of its own character and, you know, the town that Take Me part takes place in, it's, you know, this like eerie, intimate place. It's kind of like an archive itself. Yeah. Right? And, um, I would love to know what what do you feel like the landscape was like saying to you as you were writing it? Was it, were you recalling things that you've lived? Were you kind of creating something so it would have this space around the archive or I'm just curious?
3: Yeah, I, um, well, the sort of setting definitely came to me like really early on, you know, probably like the first two things that really coalesced about the book in my mind and that stayed pretty stable throughout were like the ki- the archival format and that question of like investigating these things that people leave behind um, and the kind of conflicting perspectives and narratives. So that on the one hand, and then on the other hand, this, um, this setting, this kind of atmosphere Part of it was like at the time that i started thinking about it there weren't a ton of um like thrillers and sort of kind of like gothic romances which is a bit what um the book is as well that were set in like california like i had read a lot of them that were set in new england um mm-hmm. you know like the secret history or something like that and i like loved those but i was interested in like what would happen if you took a lot of that kind of um sublime nature and spookiness but put it in California which I think has like this space in the imagination that I think also like when you know you I I now live in Los Angeles I didn't at the time I was writing it um but I think there is this feeling of California as this like idyllic
1: it has a very Mm -hmm.
3: powerful place in the American imagination and like both Kate and Miranda are coming from New York, trying to escape very difficult things. Come to California, feeling like it's going to be this um, reset, and find out that a lot of the same difficulties continue to pursue them. And also that there's something about—I um, guess it, I feel like for me as a writer, it like adds to the drama of you know the narrative of like mm-hmm. having these beautiful. It's set in Marin County um, in this, um, this area that has, like, you know, huge cliffs, and, like, crashing oceans, and, like, lagoons, and is just very, like, kind of overwhelmingly beautiful, um, and I was, yeah, interested in, like, the play between that, um, and then I guess I would just say about the small community thing, um, it also, it's based loosely on a town called Bolinas, which is sort of, known and actually has like recently resurged in the news because of they they had this very like specific approach to um it says that you're reconnecting hopefully i'm not reconnecting
0: you're so good sarah uh, okay
3: great okay
0: great for for amy joe to hop back on
3: okay cool
0: <laughs> um while we wait mm. uh maybe do you want to like read another little selection
3: Oh, um, I think she'll be, well, she'll, she should be right back. Um, but she's coming. I, mean, she's coming. I see you're coming. Don't okay, great. okay, cool. Yeah. But, um, yeah, I mean, I can tell, I guess people a little bit more about where it is set because she has already read it. So she sort of knows. So if you haven't read, it, it has this, like, um, like what I kind of call it, like a beach gothic vibe. It's sort of these huge cliffs, these crashing waves, um, these like redwood forests, and there's something like very kind of eerie and um, haunting about, about that beauty. And I think that's kind of the tone that I was hoping to play with um, throughout the book. Um, and I think is why um, Amy said that it reminds her a little bit of Shiner. Yes, I, I can see that.
0: I'm gonna pop yeah. in. Since, uh, okay, great. Since we have no Amy for the moment.
3: Oh, um, okay. I mean, I can, I can read something. I just I just feel like she'll be able to come back soon, so I don't <laughs> want to derail the conversation too much.
0: Let's. Um, okay. Let me try one more time. Thanks, everyone, for bearing with us. Yeah, I see her here. I keep inviting her. Hmm.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> I wish I had a little like elevator music I could play. Mm-hmm.
3: No, do I can also text her and tell her too. That um, I'll just tell her that. If you're inviting her back. Hey, Amy. I guess if she's here, she sees me doing this. So I don't actually need to text her. Hi. <laughs> um, OK, well, I'll, while you figure that out, I will. Um, I'll tell people about the cover, which is like a short enough thing that won't get like dis, um disconnected. Uh, if Amy pops back on, does that make does that feel good? Um, I had a better idea. I'll just find us. I'll just find a section that describes the um, the setting in a way that will make it clear what Amy and I are talking about before um, before we continue. Um, because like very early on. No, that's okay. I feel that I should have just started reading. We've, we're all learning here. I'm learning. Okay.
2: (laughs) Thanks everybody. Sorry. All right. right. We're
3: good. I'm going away again.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, everybody.
3: No, I should, I should have done a better job um, entertaining us all while we wait. Okay. Um, but all Well, we were talking about the, um, I was going to say just about the community. It's based on this like very eccentric little community in Northern California that is known for being, um, very retrograde in a lot of ways. Um, like it's, uh, but, but in a way that's like very desirable also, you know, like they, um, they don't have street signs because like you should be able to know where you're going or. Um, they, like, created all these bylaws that make it really hard to build any new any new houses at all. So these things that have done a great job, like, preserving some elements of the community, but have also, um, you know, maybe created a very insular community that is a little bit, um, yeah, a little bit, like, a good place, for, like, a crucible for pretensions to emerge.
2: Yeah. What... What was it like creating a fictional archive for a fictional character? Um it was so impressive. I mean it just <laughs> it I mean you look at it and it's like a the story within a story, you know, it feels real, you know. Yeah,
3: I'm th- I mean I certainly wrote a lot of documents that then, you know, didn't make it into like the final version. Um so trying to figure out probably the hardest part of it was that um i have a lot of experience working in archives and like doing that kind of research so the formatting and the kind of questions i was interested in is like like the way that people talk about themselves or the types of things you find those were that came very naturally to me. But part of what I was like kind of initially interested in doing was being like, well, here's what it's really like, you know, to be in an archive. And the reality is it's like pretty boring um, (laughs) a lot of times. And so I had this like, I'm like, I'm gonna show people how boring it is. And then I was like, that's not really like fun to read a book that's boring. And also, you know, it's also hard to advance plot in a way like in a way that's also totally realistic to how people actually write in diaries and journals. So there was a lot of trying to like balance i think the the tone especially of like Miranda's entries so that they felt real but also like were legible, you know, like in the editing process there were a lot of like lines that my editor was like this is great, but like, I don't know what it refers to. And I was like, yeah, that's the point. You don't know what it refers to. And then I had to be like, that's actually really not a pleasant reading experience. Like I totally understand that. Like we didn't fight about it. Like once she pointed it out, I was like, yeah, I can see that. That's a horrible decision. Yeah.
2: Yeah. You know, I, I kind of went through something similar with Shiner because throughout the novel in a few different places, there's these unfinished letters that Ruby's writing to her daughter. And, um, my editors were kind of like wanting some resolution to them. Like, what did this mean? What was she going to say? And I was that same thing. Like the whole point is that when somebody dies, you know, you don't get a second chance to know what they were going to tell you. And then there's that sort of like open space. And I just feel like that's so real when you're thinking about the people you love that came before you or the people that you're, you're researching. There's so much like white space and you're just sort of left being like, what did this mean? You know, when you're trying to sort of like piece together the facts of a life to create some sort of like narrative, um, which is exactly, you know, what Kate was spending that summer doing, right?
3: Yeah, totally. It was important to me that there would be like some kind of lines or parts in there that like wouldn't recur or that wouldn't, like ever be fully explained because i wanted the reader as it sounds like you also wanted to have that like frustration of understanding um but i also wanted it to be like an enjoyable reading exactly. experience and yeah. so you kind of had to like balance the two like i want to frustrate them a little bit but like i don't want to you know completely turn them off like and you want it to be clear that the frustration is kind of like purposeful which yeah. i felt like came across like that message with the letters in your book came across like really clearly to me and one thing i wanted to ask you about that is a little bit kind of related or sort of like the parallel um to archives is like the the use of folklore in your book i just thought it was like i was so amazed by how perfectly it was like woven into this story like you don't have like I, there's like a bug around me but um, uh-huh. but I've, you know, I've read books, and like, some of them are great, but there's sort of like a folklore, you know, scene or moment, and then it like shifts into this, like, much harder realism, and then shifts into folklore. And I felt like one thing that was really amazing about Shiner was how it just sort of is kind of woven throughout. And so there are a lot of moments with things like the miracles um, that happen, where as a reader, you're like, I don't, is this you know, really happening in the world of the book? Are we talking um, at the level of like folklore or myth? And I I thought that it was just like really beautifully done that I was like able to kind of suspend that um, that knowing, which I feel like it's really hard to do to like be, I, it takes a lot of talent as a writer to be able to like have that suspension of knowledge and have your reader like buy into that. Um, Were you all like, was the folklore ever like a bigger or smaller part of it? Did you ever like, there's almost like a magical realism element to it. I don't know if you would use that phrase, that word or not. So
2: it's interesting because, um, you know, so I grew up in not a snake handling church and I didn't grow up, you know, in a place that's as isolated as this mountain in the novel, but I did grow up in a faith healing church Um, where miracles and mystery and things that you can't explain, it was just sort of like part of the playing field on a Sunday. And just people had all kinds of stories that boggled the mind. So that was sort of like the landscape of faith and the landscape of life as I first knew it was that there was just magic and mystery everywhere you looked and, um, even though I was somebody who I couldn't speak in tongues, even though people around me were doing it, you know, I never prophesied that kind of thing, never wanted to. And it created this like real, I think mm. just gap or tension for me, 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 like, can I have like an authentic faith if I don't practice it this way? And, um, I think as I got older and I had to reckon with like, what is were for those things real? And if they weren't, what does that mean about everything I've been taught? And so I think I wanted um, Ren to, who you know, the 15-year-old girl, to have a similar kind of reckoning that's kind of like, what does it mean to have like my own faith apart from this um, story that's living on my mountain? And I think what happens for Ren is that part of her finding kind of her own sense of self is sort of piecing together what parts of this mountain myth are just smoke and mirrors. And that can be like a really devastating journey to go on because everything her father has given into this thing he believes in it's, you know, cost a lot of things on his wife and his daughter. So there's a real benefit to everybody on the mountain kind of buying into it too, but it's not, um, Maybe some of it's real, but not all of it, I think, is an actual uh, evidence of, of like having faith, you know. So I think a lot of it is sort of mirrors like my kind of living in a similar situation and then my leaving home and being like, oh, like other people don't experience life this way. What does that mean? You know, Um yeah, I, that means yeah, oh go on no no go on. I was just going to say I think that that's sort of like an Appalachian sort of like way is like communal storytelling which is really beautiful and I wanted that to come across in the book and I also wanted to capture sort of the sacredness of living that kind of life because so much about Appalachia is like you know like I read in the prologue people think oh it means poverty it means you're not educated and um you know those might be problems to be sure but there's like just so much beauty and even yeah i think even in you know some of these weird faith practices that people have so i wanted to capture sort of that nice element instead of like
3: i wanted to get up
2: inside of it you know what i mean and not just be like pointing the finger at it
3: yeah i think like mind-boggling is the perfect word like that was my mind felt boggled when i was <laughs> when i was reading it but i think um like yeah it's you know creating this sense of like wonder in a way and I think that you know that makes sense that that's that it for you was really about trying to kind of reckon with in um in literature like something that you had grown up reckoning with or like seeing in a certain way because I felt like there was so much authenticity and respect behind it that I felt like I was able as this a reader to like to just wonder in this way that was really exciting um, exciting for me you know like it didn't feel like I was I wasn't constantly like testing myself like oh like did you know this really happen or this really Mm -hmm. happened it didn't feel like I was like being forced to decide yes or no it was sort of like going to this beautiful plane of wonder and I really enjoyed that Um, yeah I, I liked that a lot and it's not something that I personally you know from my life associate with religion necessarily but I yeah. do think that, uh, like a lot of writers, I have a very active imagination, and so yeah. I'm very, like, you know, just drawn to the idea of being able to like imagine kind of like multiple sort of realities or interpretations or like impossibilities. And I, um, I think it's really hard though to convey in fiction. I thought you did such a beautiful job.
2: Thank you. I, I mean, I think it's interesting, like sort of what you set out to do when you start a book and then sort of what becomes of it when you're done. And I think when I started the book, I wanted there to be this thing that happened that everybody called a miracle, but the main character knows is not. Mm-hmm. And what I th- and that, I think, stayed true until the end. But then when I finished the book, what I realized that was such a gift to me was that There are real miracles in the book. It's just nobody's able to recognize them. And they come in sort of this Mm -hmm. flesh and blood, love and sacrifice that the women have for each other. And that is every bit of a powerful miracle as, you know, whatever it is that a snake handling preacher does or what it is that a moonshiner does when he like throws corn and water in a pot and lets it simmer and all of a sudden it becomes alcohol i mean i think that those are sort of these very real very important everyday miracles that exist in the world
3: yeah there's like this daring there's like one image which it comes from later in the book but it's not spoiling anything but like when um like a young sort of child ivy um like ties all these gloves together and then lights them on fire on her head and then like falls back into snow and like extinguishes them and if you like think through like the logic of events it's like okay I mean those all make sense as events but the way that it's told I was like reading I was like I don't know like there was just something where I was like did her ha- hair just like light on fire like how did it, it it was just like trying to like piece together this thing that actually was really you know remote but it was this like act of daring or sorry but it was very concrete but it's also like this act of like daring that um, is much more abstract that I felt like really becomes the focus of like, of that moment. Anyway, I thought that was a cool, yeah, you a cool section.
2: Sometimes, And this is sort of like, maybe how it is with an archive too. There's like the story and then what becomes of the story and, you know, the the truth that happened and then the story that people actually end up telling about it. And those are like, not always the same thing. And there's like always this gap I think um, I so like I said, you know, I, I loved that this was like a, a literary thriller um, that has a lot of heart and smarts and um, I'm curious if you had to give just one piece of advice to somebody who's an aspiring thriller writer, what would you say do you think maybe mm. this is your <laughs> Because I, it's really hard to write a page turner that is, is something that has layers to it, you know, that you can go back and think about. I mean, because I have thought so much since I read your book I th- about mental illness, which we can talk about, about archives, about women in art, um, that I'm just, yeah, like I I am curious what you think is is a good tip for somebody who might just be starting out.
3: That's um – um. Yeah, I'm so happy to hear that you know that it's been something that's like a space for continued reflection because I feel like that's always just such a compliment as an author to hear that it has like provoked you know further thought and reflection. Um, I will say, um, you know, there are a lot of people who like love the thriller genre who do not feel that taking apart is a thriller, so there's like mm-hmm. a little bit of like con- you know controversy yeah. over that and so i guess they i would just use
2: that term no no, no
3: you're totally fine mm-hmm. using it. i mean i think like i think i have a very capacious definition of thriller and so to me um it's like more about like the mood and about like the um the kind of like unfolding of it i yeah. guess um but it's not a book where there's like you know people are jetting between like you know like greece and london and like James Bond is like you know shooting an yeah. up or any, whatever um it's not that book those books are also great I love an action film but it's not quite like that so just to say I guess I would say my advice to thriller writers is would just be based on like my very specific kind of thriller I guess that I write that some people don't feel as a thriller um but I do think that I I think in terms of like the pacing and trying to like you know maintain interest, I would say a lot of that is just really thanks to my editor, you know, being like, is this like, is this part necessary? Like, I think I've really started to try to think of scenes as, um, as I'm telling them as like, well, what, like, what function is this scene serving in the course mm-hmm. of like, advancing, you know, these other, um, these other elements are prompting further things and like thinking about ways this is something that I do think is, um, you know, more common for literary suspense or thrillers is that a lot of the description or exposition will be like more wrapped into scenes rather than um, sort of uh, like kind of more like having that be kind of the framework and kind of like dipping in and out of scenes. Like it's a more kind of like cinematic structure, if this makes sense, this might be being very like nitty gritty. Um, So I guess just thinking about um, how to like, externalize some of the conflicts and have them be um you know conversations or actions between people in the way you know you might recommend for a screenwriter to do i think that helps Mm -hmm. the plot advance in a way that is like more readable as suspense Um, i don't know if that's actually really good advice i'm just thinking on my feet here but i um it's certainly something i thought a lot about this book was like how much of this scene can be summarized or like put into description and how much of it should be like yeah. really um a conversation that has tension and it is like moving forward yeah do you think, what do you think <laughs> it's like a really nitty gritty response like it's I feel useful like.
2: to do you consider yourself a thriller writer
3: um yeah I mean I certainly have no Probably I. The only way that I wouldn't is that I do. It does make me feel you know sad when people are like, oh, like I bought this thinking it was like a different kind of book, and then they're you know yeah. disappointed, and that's always you know sad. But I think there's so much great work happening right now in like the crime, mystery, thriller, suspense genre, and there's also there's just so many talented authors who are doing such like really close like character work, thematic work um having these really like character driven stories beautiful writing that to me is it's like a very um it's like a very fun space to be working in right now and so I'd be like very proud to be considered um a thriller writer and I think like every year there's like more and more um authors who sort of you know, can fall into that category of like a thriller with hearts and smarts, as you say, which I think is like a great way of describing it. Like Steph Chal, Elizabeth Little, Attica Locke, um, Tana French is like the ultimate queen. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, there's just like so many really, really smart authors that are working in that space. Yeah, I don't know if that answered your question. It
2: did because I just like I said, I think it's. Um a genre maybe I just am so impressed when people are able to kind of weave things together and make you keep guessing um but not in like a cheap or artificial way so when I think about doing that I'm like I just feel like that's so hard what's well, so
3: funny though because I feel like Shiner has those a lot of those elements of like the mystery like we're trying to like kind of understand I I mean I think it's it part of like maybe the tension or like the mystery is just like trying to understand the characters and trying to understand them. But there is this sense of like, well, how did we end up at this place? You know, um, there are some like terrible things that happen early in the book and that then we're sort of trying to figure out like, well, how did you, how did we get here? And I feel like it's a similar sort of set of questions. So I think you'd be very well-equipped to write a crime mystery novel. (laughs) (laughs)
2: <laughs> and I think Perfect. what I'm trying to get across is sort of like, I mean, two things. I think one, there's, there's such a push for us to have like propulsive storylines that kind of push forward. But sometimes I feel like the most interesting storylines kind of are pushing back, you know, mm-hmm. going back to that because that's, you know, for somebody who, who lives with trauma, you're just kind of sort of ever present circling. Right. And I think that, putting that on the page in a way where the structure reflects what that life is is like, I think it can be really satisfying for a reader for something you've experienced in your life to see characters sort of say, oh, this thing is like coming around again, you know? Um, and then I think the other thing is too, like if there's family secrets, if there's these juicy secrets, like I kind of wanted each section of the book to feel like You know you're sitting down with another relative who is like oh you think that's what happened like let me set you straight because i feel like that's what happens you know when you talk to your grandmother about like one thing and then your grandpa's like oh no 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 you know um because everybody holds a different piece of the truth and trying to get at the truth it exists in those cracks right where you know people have a different come away from the same set of facts with a completely different interpretation of them
3: yeah i was um i was talking to alexis shakin who wrote this great book saint x which is another thriller that is very smart very beautifully written um and has some really great characters i was talking to her today and we were talking about how like both of our books have these characters who are like obsessed with pursuing the truth and kind of Mm -hmm. like trying to determine the truth in a pretty like evidence-driven way like that you know i think both her main character and Kate the archivist and Take Me Apart are like very much believe. you know, if we can just get these facts, everything will be, you know, figured out, like everything will be sort of like situated and all my problems will be solved. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's like such a desire for the truth and I think that um, what they end up, you know, I think both realizing is that truth is much more slippery, that there are a lot of yeah. interpretations, And I think that slipperiness, like, comes up even more um, centrally, like, in Shiner. And it's it's interesting because I feel like, you know, Ren, who's, like, the character who we start from her point of view, is she doesn't necessarily have, like, that, like, evidence. She's not like, oh, I'm going to assemble all the evidence. Like, I feel like her mode of investigation is, like, a little bit different it's like kind of like a probing like asking questions rather um but and she's very like she really wants to like sort of see things i feel like but it's kind of a different um like i like there's this like fluidity of like moving between versions of the truth and that slipperiness really i feel like comes through in shiner in a way i thought thought was really beautiful Uh, yeah. And like, you I guess I felt like I had this idea, you know, through reading it, you know, a lot of moments where I was like, I felt like you were beautifully capturing that sometimes, you know, having the facts is not really enough or is not like the core of it, right? It's yeah. kind of um, all of the emotion and like the sort of sum of the story.
2: Yeah. You know, it's interesting because so the first book I wrote was a memoir, you know, um, which is obviously was me telling the truth. And it is also about what it's like to be a young woman who has to keep a secret and the reverberations of that, you know, in a life, in a community. And then, you know, when I finished that and I was super sick of myself, (laughs) I wanted to write about other people, but I think I still was really captured by this notion of what does it mean to tell a true story and what does it look like to care about the truth and what does it mean when everybody's, version of that truth doesn't match and then you're kind of left yeah feeling like i'm i'm living in this like slippery you know reality because uh you know when you publish a memoir you know i had some people say oh you got it right you know who lived through the same thing that mm. i did and then i had some people say oh i think you got it wrong so and it was like we were all there we all experienced you know the mm. same people just sort of like step away from it um with different things and um you know, I've had a lot of people ask me, you know, if I get offended, if people think that like Ren is some sort of me, you know, Mm. if if things happen to Ren. And I had sort of this reverse experience where it was like people questioned whether my memoir was true versus, Mm. you know, so I'm like, I don't care if you think that I wrote about myself and Ren, it matters more that I told you that, you know, my first book was like the truth. So I think um, it's interesting how like, your life and the things that you're thinking about in your life can kind of like show up on the page, you know, in, in interesting ways. Even when you're like not writing by yourself, you know. I
3: was wondering. I haven't read Cinderland yet, although mm-hmm. now it's next on my list after Finer. <laughs> but um, I was wondering, like, what the difference would, like, what it was like for you writing each book. Yeah. Um, the diff the differences in between like writing a memoir and writing a novel and also like the differences of like not just like marketing it but like that you know the process of like going public with it I'm just so daunted by the idea of writing a memoir by like having to understand my own life well enough and then also by the idea of then you know putting it out there and I'm just like so amazed by people can do it did you feel like writing Shiner gave you a different perspective on that process or had you kind of like put Cinderland and, like, the memoir experience to bed when you wrote this.
2: You know, I never, ever thought I would write a memoir. And it was sort of this, like, gift that came to me, I think, at the right time. And um, there were just some things I hadn't reckoned with really in an important way in my past. And I think I was trying to write stories, but I could see when I would look at what I was writing that there was this thing this secret that I'd kept for this long time. And I could see it in my, in my work and how mm. I was sort of like going like this. And the reason that that was, is because that's what I was doing in my life. You know, mm. I, I was like swerving around things. And I think I sort of got mm. to point. I was like, what if, what if I don't swerve? What if I stop swerving? What comes out? And, um, I had a teacher ask me, you know, where are you from? Tell me where you're from. And Cinderland became, you know, a very long answer to that question. Um, and I've heard a lot of writers who, who write both fiction and, and memoir fiction and nonfiction say that the process is the same. But for me, it just was night and day just because I think mm. of the risk that I took of the story that I told in Cinderland. I don't think that you can re- recreate that in fiction, nor should you have to. Yeah. Um, so I think that there's something really special about the form of memoir where you're, you're setting a contract with your reader that says, what I'm about to tell you is as true as I can tell it, as straight as I can tell it. Um, and I did that and I think because I did that, it sort of like freed up all this other emotional terrain for me to explore in a joyful way that I don't think I would have if I hadn't sort of like let Cinderland mm-hmm. lay the groundwork and um because fiction just lives in possibility which i love um there's so much to explore because you can you know reach to different perspectives which is something you know we both did you know with cinderland it was like i could only i mean there's court documents in cinderland but it's pretty much just me so there's something really freeing about being like what might other people have to say about something and what might other people find funny? That you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. That just like it gives you room to breathe. Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah. So I think it's, what's cool is that I feel like you know my my nonfiction or my my memoiristic work is in conversation with my fiction work, but I just feel like the bounds are very different and sort of the agreement that you're setting with the reader is very different. So I think that they, I hope that they complement each other, and I hope that they continue to complement each other. Um, I would imagine, do you, what is it like for you when you're switching between, you know, your academic work versus fiction? Do you feel like, is it similar or is there, or do you sort of keep them in their own kind of compartments?
1: yeah i
3: mean it's interesting because i you know for a long time i was doing like them very separately you know i was like doing pursuing this academic career and i was like secretly writing fiction and then i signed with my agent and that's when i was like oh i should like tell people i guess or like now i like felt like i had to tell people um and were were they um, surprised
2: what was what was that like
3: yeah so people were really surprised um i think like Yeah, I think people were very surprised. Although I was, you know, I had been really worried about telling, um, you know, like the faculty in my program and things like that. Mm -hmm. I was worried that they would think I was taking um, my actual work less seriously. Um, I say actual work because at the time I was only being paid to do academic work and not being paid to do any writing at that time. Um, And I was worried that they wouldn't think I wasn't taking it seriously enough, but they were actually really supportive, which I think is also because I was like, um you know in an English department where we all like love books a lot that's why oh, we yeah. like you know get yeah. PhDs in English and like talk mm-hmm. about it and teach books and so you know there was a lot of like excitement that w- and supportiveness that was wonderful um, but anyway so they were like really separate for me and then kind of like it was I mean maybe I hadn't thought about this but maybe it is a little bit similar to how you sort of like felt like there is this like pre-terrain suddenly for you to like write in a new way. I felt like being able to like admit that these were like these two halves of my work and Mm -hmm. my life allowed me to kind of think of them in concert and Mm -hmm. connection in a a way that has been really exciting. So that like, I feel, you know, like I I have learned so much from my academic analysis like just about story structure and like thinking about it in a particular way And I've also learned a lot about, like, I think my academic work has been really influenced by me thinking about craft more because, like, Mm -hmm. there's kind of this tradition right now, and like, um, in literary academia, is like you kind of just look at everything as like outside of the author; it's just sort of like a historical document. And so, having to think about craft has kind of changed my um, perspective on that. So they've informed each other, but then at the same time, they are very separate in my head because it's not like I like go down to write and I'm like how can I like apply this academic principle or that I learned or something, you know, and yeah. it's just not like that at all. They're just kind of like two parts of my brain that kind of come out in some way. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, but I think the biographical thing is interesting, because um, I was very, you know, nervous about Take Me Apart coming out. I mean, I guess like still am in some ways, because I didn't, there's a lot of really difficult material in there, and that I didn't I felt there would be a lot of pressure to be Mm -hmm. like, you know, which parts of this are biographical. Cause I think that's often Mm -hmm. a question that people ask of, um, of female authors in particular. Mm -hmm. I think there's a lot of desire to know, you know, what is real, what's not real. How could you possibly know something? Um, and yeah, and I think that's been hard and it's like, I, it hasn't, you know, been an issue in terms of, um, doing interviews and things like that the way I feared it would be but Mm -hmm. it is a little bit um you know it's a little scary I guess for me because I I really I I guess I don't want to have to talk about um my work super at least like those really difficult elements of my work super biographically but there's some like very difficult material in there so um yeah yeah, I don't know
2: you know, it it brings up that question of, of what we owe a reader um, when they read our work. And, I, you know, it's easy to, you know, reading a book is such an intimate act that I think sometimes it's easy for a reader to make that jump to say, well, let's, you know, I, I want all your secrets now because they sort of had this book of like these character secrets and it's it's a real journey to be like i have to like find my line you know i still i mean with cinderland i mean it came out five years ago and still when i know i'm gonna have to talk about it i have to like i set a half hour before and i'm by myself and i have to give myself a real talk about so i find my center before I do it even now you know even yeah you know years because it, it, it's a real challenge. Because, you know, you want to bring your most authentic and your most generous self to to your readers. But at the same time, you don't want it to, like, be wearing away at your your privacy, you know? Yeah. So that's important to protect, too. And there's, there's no guidebook for that. It's sort of like you can only figure out what you need by doing it wrong, I think. Yeah.
3: You know? I think that makes a lot. I also will say, like, I think that I – then, you know, in I did try a little, you know, when I was, like, already sensing that this would be something that was, like, difficult for me, mm-hmm. writing take me apart. I did also kind of use the book, I think, to think through some of those because a big sort of tension in the book is, like, Miranda is a very private person and a very famous artist and feels yeah. that people don't have a right to know things about her and that they shouldn't have to know things about her in order to understand her artwork so like there's a lot of debate among a lot of scholarly debate in this like fictional world about um you know whether some of her photographs are real and whether you know there's they're actually photographs of self-harm and she's sort of like doesn't matter like why do you need to know that in order for the art to have meaning and so i i do feel like i was able to sort of think through some of those questions in the book in a way that felt um like i was you know,
2: engaging with my, my fear, I guess, in that way.
0: Mm-hmm.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: And, yeah. I, you know, I think, you know, one of the questions I had written down here was that, you know, um, mental illness is, is portrayed in the novel with such breathtaking care in a way I don't think I've ever seen oh, okay. in fiction. Um, and that meant a lot to me and, um, because I feel like it mirrors what it is actually like in real life. And you're like, how much do I let people know about me? You know, if I do have like a secret, I don't want to share, or if I do have a history with me- mental illness, like we all, you know, Miranda is experiencing it on a really grand scale because she's this artist and people want a piece of her, but everybody kind of experiences that in their own sort of private way. Of, like how much am I going to let somebody know about what's real about me? And um, I'm, what do you you know in regard to you know mental illness and and art um and perhaps what it means to be a woman what do you hope readers come away with after they finish the book
3: Mm, i think that you know in terms of representing mental illness i think it was important for me to show that it is a really painful experience that can have a lot of pain for you know the ill person and for the people around them and also that it's not um, in and of itself, like the entirety of someone, you know, like I think there's kind <laughs> of, you know, sort of two sort of trends of, or two ways that mental illness is often represented in in literature and film and TV. And one is this kind of like really like spectacular kind of, um, uh, I mean, just like kind of like, It's kind of gross in in a lot of ways, you know, it's sort of like sensationalized and it's made into this thing like, oh, you know, sort of like let's often women, let's just sort of like watch them suffer and see like how hard and visceral their life can be. And like, that's how I want to show like the extreme, the extremity of it. It's not limited to women, um, but there's like, I think, just in general, sort of a an intensity about that, but then on the other hand, I feel like, you know, maybe more in the last 10 years, there's been a kind of trend towards saying, you know, like mental illness is normal, it's part mm. of everyday life and like, it's easy to fix and you know, and, and there's especially kind of um, a thing that's like, oh, you know, like don't do medication. Like there's kind of this like, this weird stigmatization of medication in the service of like normalizing mental illness yeah. in some mm-hmm. way. And so I didn't want, I, I think that there are parts of both of those that are perspectives that are valid and that are meaningful yeah. for the people who are creating those accounts, but I wanted it to be balanced and I wanted it to feel, to, to show that something can be painful and also, um. And also generative, I think that's the one thing that Kate and Miranda both have in common in dealing with their mm-hmm. illness is that there are positives for them in their illness. And that's something that's really mm-hmm. difficult for them because there's also a lot of pain and trying to understand, you know, how to, um, they obviously have this desire to like get all of the positives and yeah. of the pain. Mm-hmm.
1: Um,
3: but trying to just grapple with that being a really complex experience for individuals, um, and also it was important for me to show that it is really hard um, for families and and loved ones as well um, mm-hmm. because there just as can be like a difficulty of understanding um, that creates more pain on both sides mm-hmm. yeah
2: yeah and I think um, I so appreciate hearing your thoughts on it because I think as I was reading it it just it moved me so much to see this just, fully living, breathing account of what it is like, you know, the ups and the downs. And I think another thing that the characters did for one another, even in their own limited ways, was to say, you know, for Kate, for example, you know, to just have people around her that that see it mm. and that are just, that they just remain, you know, they're there mm-hmm. and they see it. Um, and I felt like for me, that just was such a moving um, thing to take part in as a, as a reader. Um, cause that's something that I've wondered about in my own life is like, what if people see the parts of me that I don't want them to see, then what happens? And I feel like I was able to witness Kate reckon with that and sort of have people that remain around her, even though they don't get it right. You know? Um, yeah, there's definitely yeah. And I think
3: that's also something that, you know, Kate, um, without giving away too much at the end of the book, but I do think that, you know, Kate really benefits from having um, a net or a small network, but a network of people who are really do yeah. care about her a lot and are making a real effort to understand her and to like also um, help really actually help her through what she's going through, even if they don't know how. And I think what, becomes so hard for Miranda is almost, you know, not the illness itself that she's experiencing, but the total lack of support that she has, the complete evisceration of support. And that I think actually is, you know, what um, Mm. ends up becoming more dangerous for her than the, the illness itself.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I love too. for all of you who are watching, it has a great ending too. Oh good. I'm
3: glad you say that. I appreciate that. My mom did tell me that it had the best ending of any book ever. So Hey, you know, you know, I
2: will
0: say, review. My
2: mom, my mom said you know, she read it and she said, you know, these are the things I liked, and then whatever. And then at the end, you know, of the text she sent me, she said, but snakes, Amy. Ew. <laughs> <laughs> That's so good. I love that. <laughs> so, um, I know yeah. we're, we have maybe, I don't know, 13. Yeah, minutes. like a few minutes left for um, questions. I, yeah, I don't know if there are questions, but I did want to know, can you tell us anything? I know you have a second novel mm. with FSG. Do you want to talk about it? Do you want to talk, not want to talk about it? <laughs>
3: no, I don't want to talk about it, but I am really excited about it. And I think that, you know, if you like taking me apart. Hopefully, you know you'll like it too. Um, but I do feel like I'm finally at a moment where I feel like I fully have grasped it. Like just the mm-hmm. last couple of weeks, and that's like a really exciting moment. Exactly. I mean, I haven't finished it, but I feel like I'm like I
2: really understand it now. And that's very exciting. So, yeah. What about you? So I'm sort of the same. I mean, I am working on something new, but I've realized I sort of have to work for like a solid year and a half on something and not have any idea what. It's about, like, mm. I couldn't even give you, I mean, I just, and that's actually an important part of my process to sort of be so confused about what the heck is coming out of me in my notebook mm. for a full year. But, I am mean, so, I mean, what I'm working on now, um, it's a story about a meteor that hits a very small town where a famous folk singer disappeared some okay. years earlier. And it's about how her life kind of intertwines with one of the young women who witnesses the meteor. And so um, witnesses meteor hit the ground. So, I mean, but it's a lot about some of the same things in Shiner, you know, untold women's stories. It's a lot about music, the power of music and memory. And so um, it's been a real joy to work on here and there when I can in these really crazy times and not always able to work I don't know about you
3: (laughs) yeah I mean I don't have any children at home so that definitely you know creates a little more freedom in the day but it is all there's a lot happening it can be difficult to get any productive like writing done for sure
2: and so I mean I guess if anybody has any questions you could pop them in the chat box but um I do have some
3: more questions. <laughs> hey, I also have more questions for you. So, <laughs> this is great. Um, well, okay, well, I'm going to ask you a question which is about I you, you know you've um talked like already about the idea of like wanting to show how strong these women were and like this idea of strength I mean just I guess I just want to sort of hear you talk a little bit about the idea of a strong woman because I feel like mm-hmm. it's such an archetype now and like the kind of yeah. like strong female character but then mm-hmm. you know sometimes it becomes clear that people are like oh they actually want a very specific type of strength from their character and it's um it's yeah it's interesting I guess I but I, I um just trying to think, like, what are, yeah, I don't know. Anyway, just like, what do you think about the idea of, like, a strong woman as a kind of literary archetype? And were you trying to sort of challenge or question anything about that in writing Shiner?
2: Yeah, I mean, so I I did think about that a lot, because I I think um, what has happened in the past in literature is that and then maybe not so much right now, but it's been this sort of thing, like, there's a strong woman in a book when she acts like a man. Yes, been, yes, like, yeah. on a man's hero's journey. And when I was starting the book, I thought, you know, that is a story I could tell. I could tell a story about women becoming moonshiners and bootleggers and skirting the law, and it would have been a great book absolutely it is the book i love to read. So if anybody out there wants to write it, I will read it and love it. But I think what I was personally wanting to go after is what it means when strength looks like losing. And because I just feel like that is such a real part of, um, maybe making hard choices or, or living a life, um, where you have limited access to things where you're isolated. Um, And I think where i landed with that is that I'm not sure people are ever, you know, just strong or weak. I think we have like moments of strength and moments of weakness. And um, I think what I also kind of wanted to get across was where we gather strength from and is it a worthy source, right? And for the women in the book, you know, Ruby and her best friend, Ivy, their relationship is the most stable thing on that mountain. No matter Mm. what the preacher is selling, that relationship is the thing everybody looks to for some sort of sense of stability. And it's what Ren looks to is for what it means to be a woman. And it's, you know, she sees these, women who are both strong women by that definition, but we've got one Ruby stays in the lines and Ivy steps outside the lines. And we see that, you know, really it's those lines that are, are the problem. And so over the course of the novel, um, what happens with that friendship is it becomes this ultimate act of resistance against mm. who is holding power on that mountain. And that is an act of strength that I think Ren herself gathers strength from, um, Yeah,
3: like I I feel like, sorry, there's like this mosquito that's flying just in front of my face, but I do think that um, it is also like, you know, Ruby and Ivy's friendship is such that, you know, there are moments when they make a choice that is strong in the sense that it is, you know, very conscious, they know what they're doing, Um, but they're the only ones who understand kind of like what's at stake in that choice, Um, and so they're kind of like each other's only like witness in that sense, mm-hmm. um, and in a lot of ways. Um, but I guess I'm just thinking of you know one thing that Ruby does in the middle of the book where I was mm-hmm. like, you know, as a reader, you're like disappointed that that's what she decided. You're like, you're, you're like, I wish that that isn't what um, happened. And you can tell that to the outside characters, it looks like she's just kind of like giving up or like she's um, just going with the flow, but it, with Ivy, she's able to have this kind of like openness where they understand, I mean, maybe not always fully, but they can kind of understand like why and where that is coming from and that that's like a more active choice. And I thought that was like a really beautiful testament to friendship and we'll next
2: Yeah, I mean, I, I'm, thank you for saying that because I think I was trying to put on the page what strength might look like at times when you are living a hidden life and when that has kind of been your choice. Mm -hmm. And then to also find strength and being like, maybe I didn't make the right choice. Like, I feel like even that act takes a a bit of courage, right? To Mm -hmm. be like, maybe, you know, I did not set myself on the right path here. Yeah. You know, now what? Like that's a very scary truth to admit, I think.
3: Yeah, it's terrifying and I think that the like there is there's like so, there's a regretful feeling in a lot of Shiner. Um mm-hmm. and I think like a lot of like there's there's a, like a mournful feeling about mm-hmm. it um, even though it's also this like celebration in so many ways. Um but Instead, it's not, like, I guess, a story where the characters are, like, so mired in their regrets that they can't move forward. Mm-hmm. Maybe except Flynn. I feel like is a hard time. But um, but I certainly feel like Ruby is, like, she regrets a lot, but she's, like, but this, yeah, like you're saying, this is what she's chosen. and That really came through, um, and it was really interesting.
2: Yeah. So what do you think... Um now that you've, you know, finished taking Apart, it's out in the world. Like when you look back at those characters that you created in your mind and heart, like what do you feel like they taught you or gave you?
3: Oh, wow. I haven't thought of it that way. Um, wow. I haven't like thought of it, I guess, that way. I mean, I think of like, there's definitely certain like in writing you know elements of each character there are like moments where you know there's like a kind of level of like honesty I had to like level up or something and, like I nah. had to like get up you know you're like oh I have to like get over this um hurdle and be like fully honest and truly mm-hmm. like transparent at this moment and um I think that, like the process of doing that for each you know character, I think um was it's like it it's like admitting like you know a limitation or flaw about yourself. And I think that's like a real learning experience um for me. Um one yeah I think just trying to yeah I don't know. I'm gonna have to think about it a little bit more because I do think I certainly learned a lot. Um through the course of writing a book, but I haven't thought specifically about, like, what I've learned from writing each character. Yeah. and you
2: answer? Well, I was going to say, I think this experience, too, of publishing a book right now is, uh, you know, not what it might have been. Mm -hmm. There's been a lot of other things to, like, consider. Um, Yeah, I mean, I guess I've been thinking a lot about, I mean, like I'd mentioned before, I think, this concept of looking for real miracles in in my own life. Um, I think that was something that, you know, when I finished the book, it sort of looked at it as a whole. It was something that I had sort of like left breadcrumbs for myself to sort of say like, you know, um, if I'm looking for like some capital M miracle to sort of appear, I'm missing all these things that, that are around me, you know, just sort Mm. of every day miracles. so I, And I think that's something that the women in particular in the book um, sort of realize or face. Um, I think Flint, That's
3: so beautiful. That's such a, I love
2: Yeah, that. you know, I um, it's, and I think part of that comes when you have people read a book and kind of repeat back to you what they see that you've done in the book. And I had somebody say, you know, to me, there are miracles in this book. And it just was like this, this light bulb went off. And I was like, that's, that's so true. And then Mm. what a gift it was for me in my own life to be like, let me try to look anew at Mm -hmm. some of my circumstances that I'm like frustrated with.
3: (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Like the thing that is the most like spectacular or eye catching or that people are telling like, you know, stories about down the mountain or not to always be the things that are actually the most miraculous. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like that's a really good note to end on. Yeah, um, sure. Yeah. Um this was awesome. Oh yay, Maddie's back. Maddie. Thank
0: you both. That was such a great conversation and um I really appreciate you going deep in in, in depth. Uh, <laughs> this is like this is such a cool platform and and it's been great listening to you. So thank you both for being here tonight.
3: Oh yeah, thank, thank you so you. much for for hosting. Yeah, I know I went a little I went quite deep on the craft. So Joe, and I will continue continue the conversation. Thank everybody for
2: for craft talk. Oh
3: good. Yeah, great. Yeah. (laughs) I mean it's fun for us too.
2: Yeah. And thank Um, you for bearing with me with the technical difficulties. I appreciate it. So
0: Yeah, we rolled with it. All right, everyone. thank you you so much, Maddie.
1: And thank you, everyone, for everyone. for coming.